thank you, Marshall, and thank you, Rajul, and great to see some old colleagues. I was a part of this institution, the great institution, learned a lot, and now time to also share a few thoughts when I'm away from it. The topic that is I'm raising the question, which Lester Brown has raised long back, who will feed China? It's only a matter of time what China perhaps, what experienced last 20 years, we feel next 20 years India may be experiencing a similar situation. Why? By 2024, India is going to be the most populous nation on this planet, surpassing China. Interestingly, unlike China, India's 65% of population is below 35 years of age. That means they are going to eat a lot. Fast-growing GDP. China had 9 to 10% rate of growth, but India sustained since the reform started on an average is 7% rate of growth and likely to continue that for the next 10 to 15 years. Urbanization. By 2030, 600 million people are going to be in urban areas, so a big challenge of transporting food from the hinterlands, rural areas to urban areas, major challenge. Last survey, 2011, that we had the detailed expenditure survey, 45% of an average household was spending on food. It is coming down over a period of time. Remember, it is percentage of expenditure, not income, and Indians have very high rates of savings too. So from that angle, but still the pressure, when you have the 7% rate and population growth coming down to 1.1, 1.2, per capita incomes going to increase anywhere from 55 to 6% per annum, you are going to have explosion in the demand for food. Challenge, look at the holding sizes, how it has been declining from 2.3 hectares to an average latest data is 1.1 hectare, 1.08 to be exact. So on those small holders, reaching, getting technology, getting incentives in place, getting the institutions right, it's going to be a massive, massive challenge. Challenge of climate and fast depleting. Water table. All the reds that you see are basically where the Green Revolution had taken place. Water table is depleting by one meter a year in the Punjab region. Can India keep producing from those granaries of Punjab to feed India, or we have to find some alternative? And some silver lining is the green shades, which are in the eastern belt where water is, but they are still in a lot of poverty. This is not the first time I'm raising this question. Many people had raised this in past. John Meller would remember those days, 1966. Paddock Brothers had written the book called Famine 75. Nobody can save India. It's a gone case. Forget about it. If free, Rajal would remember that great study. One of my wonderful colleague, uh, Peter Hazel, and uh, G.S. Bhalla and John Kerr had come up with, uh, in 1998, this, that by 2020, India will be importing 63 million tons of food grains every year, this is IFPRI. Government of India, even in 2006, 
was projecting that by 2011-12, India will be importing at least 10 million tons of food grains. In 2006, we had imported about 6 million tons of wheat, and there was a scare. Hans Benswinger, another wonderful colleague, friend, and uh, scholar, has projected 73 million tons of imports by 2039 India. So far, India overall is a net exporter of agriculture, so far. I look at that where we are ending today. This is from where the Chinese, if I had to plot the Chinese graph, China was also up to 2002-2003 net exporter of agriculture. And then, my heavens, the demand and the imports started increasing, and today their imports are almost double of their uh, exports on agriculture, and at a much higher level. Just to cite one example of soybean, their production is 12, 13 million tons, and they are importing 75 to 80 million tons of soybean. So this explosion of demand and imports can take place. Will India go that way? We'll come down to that later a bit. What is the political economy of policy setting? And that's the issue I want to focus on. Indian policy makers have to walk on a very, very thin razor edge situation. If prices go up by 15%, consumers are on the roads. If prices go down by 15, 20%, the farmers are on the roads. So how do you handle this balance? So Indian policy making, especially on trade and markets and pricing, it's always one foot on the brake and one foot on the accelerator. And we don't know what is happening. So when you analyze ex post, over a period of time, you get a flavor of what has happened uh, to this whole situation. This is the story, that if you put a brake on the output prices, when the prices start going up, first thing that Indian government does is put export bans. So much so, some states, when the potato prices a year and a half back went up in West Bengal, they did not allow the potatoes to move from West Bengal to Odisha, next state. This is the type of, at a state level, private sector will not be allowed to hold stocks, Essential Commodities Act, and so on and so forth, very restrictive trade and marketing policies on that front. Now, that, in a way, puts an implicit tax on the farmers, but then, if their incentives are not good enough, you start giving them subsidies on fertilizer, on power, on insurance, on all other types of things. So if you put the subsidies, they are shown in red, and the implicit taxation that what they could have got the prices but they could not get because of the restrictive policies, that is in the negative. On an average, for 17-year analysis, commodity by commodity, we worked for two years with OECD, under a standard methodological framework of PSC and CSC, producer support estimates and consumer support estimates, the net results were that Indian farmers have been implicitly taxed to the tune of 14% of the gross farm receipts, uh, what they could have got otherwise. That translates to, if you look at across countries which produce about 80% of the global output, India on the left-hand side, you would see uh, I think this one is the India story. It's 
last three years, 14, 15, 15, 16, 16, 17, it's about 6% negative, but overall for the 17-year period, it is minus 14% negative. And their consumers actually are supported the most, India compared to all other countries. So there is an inbuilt consumer bias in the system. That is how the political economy has uh, unfolded over a period of time, 17 years that we analyze. Look at, compared to India, where China and OECD average stands. And this is the producer support estimate. And you look at where the China has gone in. China in 1617, the support to farmers was $232 billion. And OECD, on an average, was coming towards the end at $235 billion. And India was still taxing its farmers. So that is the story. Now, if you see this, particular portion, I feel where China started off rising and giving support, maybe India will go like this further in the years to come. What China experienced in the last uh, 15 years, we may experience in the next four, 15 years. Now, I do want to peep into the past very quickly. This Green Revolution is known to everyone in the room here. When Paddock Brothers were writing, nobody can save India. India did come out of that from the seeds that were imported from Mexico at that time, uh, those high-yielding variety seeds, and today look at that. I just want to give you a flavor that in 12, 13, 13, 14, 15, 14, 15, 16, three years, India exported 63 million tons of cereals from that country, which it had not done in the last 3,000 years. 63 million tons. Today, India is the largest exporter of rice in the world. And we have stocks uh, almost double of what our buffer stock norms are. India's white revolution also is known, all done by the smallholders. Normally, people know that it is the cooperative movement and smallholders. But I do want to flag here the latest, that from 2002 onwards, when the dairy industry was totally delicensed, uh, Prime Minister Vajpayee took that major decision, and there was acceleration in the growth. And today, India is producing 177 million tons of milk. Uh, U.S., which is the second one, is about 98 million tons. So there is a massive potential that uh, has been tapped. Red Revolution poultry, again, um, coming up. You can see the inflection point and how dramatic changes took place by changes in trade policy, first allowing the grand parent stock to be imported and slashing down the import duty from 105% to 20%, and that led to a major transformation in the poultry sector. Why I want to give this sequence, the first one was government-driven primarily, the second one was cooperative-driven, and the third one is totally private sector driven. 80% today poultry is in the organized sector compared to even uh, milk, which has been there for so long, only 21% of the production is being processed through the organized sector. But poultry from nowhere, in India we have a joke saying when the government sleeps, the country progresses faster. So poultry story is literally more or less, you just change one policy and then you see the spirit of the private sector and how it is coming forward. When private sector is going to turn around the table, what they need are proper incentive structures. That's why the political economy, that you have to provide a neutral field to the farmers, 
And this is the story where the public sector investment as a percentage of total investment in agriculture has dramatically come down from more than 40% to less than 20%, the red one, uh, this. And last three, four years, there is a little concern that as a percentage of agriculture GDP, it is coming down. And that is the question that all the attempt of the new government was first to bring down the prices because inflation was hovering at 9 to 10%. Increase imports, ban exports, bring down all this. Global prices were falling. And now what Marshall was saying, this election, one of the issues, major issues that is going to be discussed and decided on is what is happening to farmers' income. Tonnage is not a problem. We have overcome the tonnage issue. But income of the farmers has become a center stage of the political discourse today. So what we need, government in the last six months tried to pump in through higher minimum support prices. But they have no structure of procuring all the commodities in different states. They can't go against the forces of market. And market prices are ruling at least 20 to 30 percent below minimum support prices that the government has announced for most of the crops. And therefore, some states, Telangana to start with, first time in history started a direct income support to the farmers on per hectare basis. Then another state, Odisha, announced. Then another two states announced. And finally, the center, in a way, is forced to, first time, about $11 billion, 75,000 crores, is going to be given directly into the accounts of the farmers, literally as an atonement for not doing the market reforms that they should have done in the five years. So that's what. But we have done a lot of work right here in IFPRI with Shangan and others that R&D expenditures, if you do that, the marginal returns are five to 10 times more than the subsidies or direct income supports. But if you don't do those things, then you will have to go. It is better than MSP or loan waivers to give direct income support, which is less distorting. I think sustainability, water particularly, is a major challenge, and that's going to be. So last point, I feel India is likely to remain self-sufficient, maybe marginally surplus, at least up to 2030. I'm not able to envision up to 2039, which Ben Swinger had a better foresight, or IFPRI is working on 2050. I'm not sure. But I think India, for the next 20 years, it's not the tonnage. It is the nutrition, malnutrition challenge. And that is a 20-year battle that India will have to fight. Fortification from all sides, political priority that is needed, diversification with rising incomes. But I am a great fan of how the uh, biofortification and also what Indians are doing with uh, zinc-rich uh, wheat and rice, and they are coming up with that. I think, I and women education with that, I think India will be able to take care of itself. Thank you very much. More details in these two publications. <laughs>